This is what I believe will be the last time in Lesson 3 here in 1 Timothy. And we'll try to summarize a little bit here uh, just to understand what we've gone over. So if you would turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful putting me into the ministry who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I, but I obtained mercy, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that, Jesus, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering, for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. In verse 17, Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this lesson here. We thank you for uh, just so much, Lord, for your word, for the Apostle Paul here in uh, describing his life before and after salvation and the focus of this lesson, Lord. We thank you, uh, Lord, that his testimony is preserved through, word, through this word, Lord, that we have his example, that uh, no one is too far gone uh, as far as we, we understand for salvation to be, uh, be effective for them, to be, to be personal to them, Lord, that anybody here can be saved, even the chiefest of sinners. Lord, we thank you for this time. We pray that you'd fill me with your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe seated. So just to try to summarize here, this is lesson three. It's been the before and after pictures. And we've had a great picture, before and after, of Saul of Tarsus, who he was before his salvation, and the Apostle Paul later on after his salvation. And we've looked at uh, bullet item one was the pictures of grace, verses 12 through 14. We looked at the proud religionist that Paul was. He was all about his Pharisaical attitudes. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was, he was the man, putting it that way. Very proud. He was certain that he was right. Has anybody here ever been certain that you were right, only to be later proved wrong? I think we can all raise our hand there. And how did you respond is a question. With what sort of grace did you respond? That's, that's a mark of a Christian testimony there. If you can step back and humble yourself when you're pointed out to be wrong and, and own it, I think I relayed the, the message of having an issue at work where I thought I made a really big mistake. And the first thing I did was I went in, in, in a corner and cried. No. Um, no, I uh, contacted the project lead and I said, I think we got a problem here within five minutes of discovering it. And it turned out to be nothing. But you know, you want to you admit fault and you want to try to rectify it as soon as you can. Uh, and then a misdirected sinner, thinking that uh, being a persecutor and, a, and a, toward uh, the brethren, that just continuing to follow your religion, um, was the right thing to do. He was, he was going in the wrong path, a sinner going in the wrong direction. And finally, we see the humble believer where in verse 14 he says, the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. 
that he obtained mercy from the Lord. And that, that's, that mercy is available to every sinner, as far as we know. The, the opportunity to be saved while you have yet breath in this life, it's there. It's ready and it's waiting. For all the people that are outside of the doors tonight that don't know the Lord, it's ready and waiting for them, if they would but call upon the name of the Lord. And then we get into the pattern of grace, where we saw God's patient mercy. Albeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that uh, God was patient with Saul. Right? He, he's, he sees all. He, he knows what's going to happen. He's declared the end from the beginning. And he knows all of us better than you know yourself to that, to that sense, better than anybody else knows you. And he knew Saul from when he was, before he was born. He knew how he would turn out. He knew his heart. And yet, the sinner that he became, the one who would go and persecute Christians, the one who would go and see uh, people put to death for what they believed, God still loved him. And God had salvation ready and waiting for him. Christ Jesus, it's just amazing. The grace of our Lord is exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. And we looked at a few things here. Patient mercy, some examples from Scripture. God being patient uh, with the, the people before the flood. Noah preached to them for more than 100 years. Moses repeated requests to Pharaoh, giving him many chances to repent. God sending a Jonah to a wicked Nineveh. And the salvation of Paul that we've been discussing. And our standard type text here, two times. All right, so the patient mercy of, of God, the believing model, and in verse 15 we had, uh, this, is a faith, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Right, the believing model. He came into the world to save sinners. That's his work, he's done it. He's done all the work of salvation. The only thing that we're required to do is have faith exercise our faith. And the world has faith, right? Everybody in this world has faith. You have faith that the guy driving in the other lane coming towards you in oncoming traffic at 55, 60, sometimes you see some guys on motorcycles buzzing in and around. Brother Austin never goes like 100 or something. Never. Nor pastor. Um, but no, buzzing, you have faith that that guy in the other lane is going to stay in his lane. And what's going to happen there's a double yellow line. You're not supposed to cross that double yellow line. Well, you have faith that somebody's going to actually obey the rules. And in that sense, um, the world has faith. But it's a misplaced faith. They have faith that, well, I'm a good person. I donate to charity. I volunteer at such and such a place. I help old ladies across the street. What uh, The standard type stuff. I'm a Boy Scout. That That's another lesson in today's age. Um, the believing model. Christ has done it all. We just call out to him in faith. And then the believing model here, our testimony can authenticate the gospel. We talked about how um, each of us has a testimony, right? Each of us that knows the Lord is Savior has a time 
when we were not saved, a before time, and an after time. And we have that middle point, that decision point, where we met the Lord and we took care of business then. We have that story, our own personal testimony, that you can authenticate the gospel and the message of it to another person by telling them your own testimony. And it's personal in that sense. And a testimony illustrates God's transforming power. And that's especially true if you got saved later in life. If you got saved as a child, praise the Lord. You don't have a wasted life. If you got saved later in life, well, part of that life was lived for you and will amount to nothing in eternity. The life that you have afterwards is what you have a choice in. How will that, how will you serve the Lord? How will that uh, glorify Him in eternity? <clears throat> and that that before and after picture of your life, somebody who knew you before getting saved versus after, um, can they see a change? They should be able to see a change. And that's a conversation starter. And more type text here. I think there's three of them. Okay. And now that we move into our point three here, our final point, um, the praise of praise for grace. Verse 17. What's interesting about this, and I'll ad-lib a little bit instead of reading what I've written. Um, what you find, and we'll see it in a few examples here, is that throughout Scripture, the Apostle Paul isn't all business all the time. He's not like doctrine, 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 doctrine. Amen. What we see here in verse 17 is there's doctrine to start out, introduction, doctrine, 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 praise. Right in the middle of everything. And it's it's not only done here, it's done in a few other places that we'll look at. But he's he's overwhelmed with joy and gladness and understanding. Here, here he's just recounted his own personal testimony again. And overjoyed, and it's flowing out of him. And he can't but praise the Lord here. Verse 17, now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible. He's using all these grand terms to describe God. The only wise God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He's describing he's all of these terms and characteristics and attributes to God here. Who's bigger than God? The king eternal. Who's immortal? Who's invisible? All of these things which are impossible by the hand of man. Kings die, right? We just had the Prince of, uh, of uh, what's his title? The Duke of Edinburgh? No, I'm not sure. Queen Elizabeth's husband, Prince Philip, passed away a little bit a little bit ago. Uh, in all sense, he's not a king, the way the, bro- the British monarchy works, but monarchs that live in this earth die. We have a king who can never die. He's eternal. But as Paul contemplated what God had done for him, how, how he had mercy on him and saved him and was using him into the ministry, Paul was overflowing with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord here in verse 17. This is what we see. It's rolling right out of him. You can't, you can't stop. It's when it gets, start, when it gets started, you just, it, it's rolling. When you got a, a big heavy vehicle that starts rolling down the hill with brakes, there's no pushing on it that you're going to get it to stop. Um, and James 5.13 <clears throat> Speaking of this overflowing um, 
joy and praise that's coming out? Is any merry, let him sing psalms. Is it flowing out of you so much that you can't, you can't stop it? What, can, what more can you do? Sing. That's what he's saying here. In Ephesians 5.19, sorry, an overflowing joy and peace that when words are not enough can only be, continue to be expressed in song. It's not enough just to write. It's not enough just to speak. Now you're going to sing. And that's wonderful. I love how we sing here in this church. It's, uh, it's great. Ephesians 5.19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making mer- melody in your heart to the Lord. And this word here, uh, sing psalms, uh, let him sing psalms, uh, one, one particular word is found here in Ephesians 5.19 and a few other places throughout Scripture. But it's that, that continued sing, sing unto the Lord. The angels sing unto the Lord. We're going to be singing unto, unto the Lord in eternity. Might as well get started. I can't carry a tune in a, in a, in a, in a five-gallon bucket, my dad says. Um, my dad doesn't sing very well, but he tries. Um, and that, that's, that's um, sing. You may not think you can sing. Sing. It's, it's for the Lord. And we see this again in, in also in 2 Samuel 6, where David is and Israel have made music and danced before the Lord to rejoice that the Ark of the Covenant was brought unto the city of David. David is so overjoyed that he's not only singing. They're not only playing instruments as the Ark of the Covenant comes into the city of David. He's leaping and jumping and, and praising the Lord. And uh, don't ask me to jump and leap in a suit. This, do you understand how restricting these things are? I can't even raise my hands above my head. Um, so yeah, leaping and jumping and praising the Lord. <clears throat> Moses and the children of Israel sang a song of praise to the Lord for delivering them from Egypt immediately after they passed through the Red Sea. And many, many, many other places. One place that I looked up, instead of just having uh, various places aren't, aren't necessarily called songs in scripture, one person had identified 185 songs. Most of the vast majority were in the book of Psalms, but there were many others that were throughout Scripture as well. It's a way to praise the Lord, is to sing songs. Be careful, but here's the careful thing. Be careful this isn't an emotional act. Is the song and the, the things that you're doing, the music and the worship, is it just a chant of phrases that are displayed on the PowerPoint outline? Is it for an emotional feeling? Is it for you to glorify and lift up the flesh? Is it the emotional feeling, oh, I feel so elevated? Be careful there. Who is the, who are you singing for? For your benefit or for the Lord's glory? But you should do it in all reverence and respect that God deserves. And that's how we should sing to the Lord. So question number 14, if you can think a little bit here. What songs come to mind when you think about God's grace in your life. Question number 14. How great thou art. Amazing grace, right? We, we had started out our lesson here, which on an amazing grace. He giveth more grace. I mean, we have, a, I think, a wonderful hymn book that we have here. And grace greater than our sin. That I wrote down. All songs that we sing regularly here. <coughs> All right, so point A, 
the direction. Now this is important. The direction of our praise. Who is our praise directed toward? What is our praise directed toward? This is interesting. I'm not sure if anybody else is familiar with this, but anybody ever hear the Mormon Church? The Mormon Church, they have a hymn called Praise to the Man. Praise to the Man in the hymn book, in their hymn book. The song is not about Jesus Christ. The song is about Joseph Smith. The first verse, and I'll read it, I'm not... I'm not going to sing anything like this, but just pay attention to the, the words that are here. Praise to the man. Praise to the man who communed with Jehovah. Jesus anointed that prophet and seer, blessed to open the last dispensation. Kings shall extol him and nations revere. Yeah, it's, it's repulsive, isn't it? <laughs> Utterly repulsive. Praise to the man, the epitome of pride we're seeing here on display. So rather than follow the dictates and doctrines of man-made religion, such as we're seeing here, give all and ascribe all praise to Joseph Smith. No. Give all praise and glory and honor to the Lord and Jesus Christ. We ought to ascribe that glory to the one true God. Question number 15. Maybe along these lines, maybe along other lines here, but question number 15 reads, what might be some clues that a church is worshiping mankind rather than God during their worship services? Mm, we could have some fun here. What's this? 7-Eleven. I have something similar. here. 7-Eleven. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe not in the same sense. What about... Um, Anybody ever see, it's, it's, it's appalling, um, christiannews.com has some random things that have come out with different news articles, and um, places that look more like they should be a, uh, a Broadway show, or smoke machines, and light laser shows, and all kinds of, and let alone, I mean the rock band is standard in most Christian churches that are around today or so-called Christian worship teams. Isn't, isn't everybody here part of worshiping the Lord? Do we have to have a team just set aside? Okay, these guys are the worship team. I don't know what the rest of you guys are just an audience. Michelle? Oh, right, 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 yeah. If there's sin in the church and that's, we're just going to glaze over and I think Brother Chris touched on that too, that we're not immune and independent fundamental Baptists as well. Right. Is the focus on, we brought in such and such Christian contemporary music artist to perform, perform, perform at our service. Sorry? Dove Awards. Um, it's ridiculous. Um, focus on buildings and and dare I say venues, we go to a venue for church, well, what kind of church is this? And the, and the other one that I've seen too is, now we don't have a coffee bar per se here, we have a little coffee machine in the back for interbreaks, but if you're going to order your, anybody go to Starbucks or any place like that? Okay, I don't even know, I just, there's black coffee and then there's other foofy drinks, I guess. Um, 
so right coffee bars things like that are you bringing people in to focus on these other little satellite issues or are you bring people in or I shouldn't say bringing people in but people are coming in to focus on the word of God right an event it's the key thing event are we focusing on the event the attraction at the venue did we did we get our ticket to go to the it's it's more or less a secular uh, activity at that point with maybe Jesus tossed around yes You can't. My goodness, our doors are open here. <laughs> the word, the world can come. You want to hear the word preached? Come. That's sad. To restrict attendance to church. And I think too, like along the building side of things here, maybe we're belaboring this point too. But we have missionaries out in the field that deal with very, very little. Uh, I think specifically, I was thinking of the Herzls in Vanuatu. And they meet in a uh, South Pacific tropical island environment. We have a nice building here with walls and a ceiling and central air and all the rest. You know what they have there? They have what amounts to a pole barn. It has a roof and all the sides are open. And they meet there and the word of the Lord is preached and people get saved. People grow and are discipled and it's amazing. They're coming for the right, the right reason. They're coming for the word of God to hear and to hear that. All right, Chris, question 16. What can a believer do to make sure their praise is God-honoring rather than just, just a show? I might argue that, you know, um, that your praise of God shouldn't just be done on a Sunday. There isn't, a, there isn't an hour of the day on a Sunday morning or afternoon or whenever church is held that you praise the Lord that it's a continual thing that's done that you praise the Lord always always if you want to add the S to the word but praise the Lord always that it's done continually that it be done in private and in public as well you're not doing your worship to be seen of men we read of those in the Bible that have done that they have the reward but not, not as a show for the praise of men. You'll have your reward if you do it for that reason. But as a, as a God-honoring praise to the Lord. Tell him thank you. You know, one of my biggest things, I know my, my mom in raising my sister and I, uh, teaching us proper manners and all the rest, would have her little hand gesture that went like this. And that meant, please, you were supposed to say, it was a prompt, a visual prompt to, to say please. And thank you followed that after you received something. And our asks and our requests um, to the Lord be brought with thanksgiving, especially, and with reverence uh, to understand who we're, who we're talking to. The God of the universe who's created everything, existing apart from anything else. He exists, he created everything. All right, um, let's see where I am. 
All right, so part B here, the expression, the expression of our praise. So as, we, as I alluded to here, Paul's words of praise expressed his understanding of God as well as his standing before him. He was once a proud religionist, and he now acknowledged God as the king. Elsewhere in scripture, Paul also praises God in the midst of instruction. And we, we talked about that. Paul would instruct, instruct, doctrine, doctrine, praise. Doctrine, 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 praise. Continuing throughout this, when he was moved by the Spirit to do so. You're overwhelmed with joy, and, and, and that just flows out of him. Romans chapter 1, verse 24, we see an example of this. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, in verse 25, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worship and serve the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Right in the middle of that, the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, if I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern mine infirmities. Verse 31. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forevermore, right in the middle of all this, knoweth that I lie not. And now we see in our text here, in verse 17, now unto the King eternal. Now, the, it's, it's interesting to, to try to understand too, and, and looking at interpretation of scripture, um, look at what it says in its immediate context and in the larger context as well, going past that. But now unto the King Eternal. And several commentators here have said, you know, you can, you can say, who is the King? Well, the King could refer to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Triune God. It could refer to the Father, or it could refer to Jesus Christ. Now, the characteristics listed here in verse 17 are shared by the Godhead. If we look through them all, We'd say here, uh, eternal. God is eternal. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. Immortal, same. Invisible, at this point of Paul's writing, same. Jesus Christ is in heaven, not visible by human beings. The only wise God attributes all shared with all three beings, persons of the Godhead. And, um, what do I think personally? I think personally, due to the immediate context and who, who um, Paul is praising here in verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus for putting him into the ministry. But I, I think, uh, and the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundantly with me, uh, with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. The references here immediately are to Jesus faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. My opinion here is that this is referring to the Lord Jesus in this immediate context. That doesn't discount the other two by any means. We also see later in Revelation 19 that Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords and, and, and ascribed to other places. God is eternal, Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, and or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. God's eternal. 
God has always existed. Time, it's, 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 it's weird to say there's never been a time when God hasn't existed, except before time, and after time, and during time. And these, all these different characteristics, which are difficult for finite mortal beings to understand and wrap our heads around. Um, God's eternality sets him apart from all others. He doesn't depend on time, space, and matter because he made all of these things. It's not the Mormon God who reorganizes existing matter. No, he made all the matter that's out there. In Psalm 145, 13, Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. God is eternal. Immortal. Now, in this sense, it's not referring to God's reign or, or Jesus' reign, but to Jesus himself. Immortal referring to incorruptible. That he does not die as kings of men do. So we mentioned Prince Philip had just passed away. Others will pass away that are kings of men. Rulers of men in our country, presidents have passed away. Our last president to pass away was George H.W. Bush. And um, Now, Jesus did die bodily on the cross. Jesus, two natures, though. 100% God and 100% man. He laid down his life and rose again. But he saw no corruption. Corruption meaning the decay of the flesh. That if we all die here before the Lord returns, we'll see. Guaranteed. Psalm 16, uh, Acts 2, Acts 13 all testify to those things. He ascended to heaven in a body, Acts chapter 1, and will return again in a body, also Acts chapter 1. That's how he'll return in a body. Where he'll return, Zechariah chapter 14, to the Mount of Olives. That's where he'll set his foot down. When will he return? Well, Revelations 19 and 20. Cover that at the end of the tribulation period. God is immortal. Christ is immortal. Invisible. This is the part that I kind of, it tripped me up a little bit, to be honest here. God is not visible to human eyes prior to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the visible is God visualized to us? The person that we can, will eventually be able to handle and touch and see. The Father and the Holy Spirit likely will never ever see. Um, now we have the Apostle Paul here. The writing of his letter to Timothy, Jesus is already back in heaven. So Jesus from the physical standpoint is invisible. We cannot see him. Does he have a physical body in heaven? Yeah. Will he return again in a physical body? Yeah, of course. That's what the Bible tells us here. Invisible. The only wise God be honor and glory forever and ever. And I see this as a statement of the deity of Jesus Christ. But not to the exclusion of describing the attributes of the Father or the Holy Spirit as well. Romans chapter 16, verse 27, To God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. The only wise, the only wise God. There were some interesting comments on this of how 
some of the better manuscripts say that the word wise does not exist in 1 Timothy 1.17. It's not found in some of the better manuscripts. Um, some have speculated that it was left out because of a, scri a scribal error, because we see it clearly in other passages in Scripture. We'll get to Jude chapter 1 here in a minute here. Um, that the word was left out intentionally because somebody thought it was poor grammar to have multiple descriptive adjectives, only and wise, to describe God in the same sentence. They thought it was poor form. Well, if it's true, and that's what the Word of God says, then we preserve that and pass it on to future generations. Jude chapter 1. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. So this is a these two are statements, and the only wise God here are statements to the exclusion of all false deities. The only God. The only wise God. It was thought that there was an Arian, Arian fallacy uh, doctrine that states that there's God the Father is the only God. Um, that there's only one God, I think, from this perspective, it sounds a lot like modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses that say the Father is God and Jesus himself is the Archangel Michael. Um, they only have one God in that sense, a singular God, not a, not a God who is a trinity. And this was to the exclusion of that. <clears throat> God knows of no other gods. Isaiah 43.10 Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed in eternity past, sometime in eternity past. No God formed before me, neither shall there be after me. This is to the exclusion of modern day humanism, where I am my own God, if that's what I follow after. Humanism promotes me, I'm it. I'm the highest authority in this world. And of course, we've been picking on Mormonism, so we'll toss them into. Paul described God as only wise, and in doing so, he recognized God as the source of wisdom. This is interesting right now. Think of who Paul was before, a Pharisee. What were the Pharisees all about? Pointing to themselves. I'm where you come to get the wisdom, to get the knowledge. For a former Pharisee, this was a big change. Pharisees wanted to be seen as the source of wisdom. They want to be the, the smart guy, the smart person that you come to. They wanted the Jews, all the Jews to come to them for the answers. Hey, we got a question about this particular doctrine. Can we carry our camels 10 steps this way on the Sabbath? Or they wanted to be, to have that, that sort of power. They wanted to be the ones that were in control. And we see in our society today, that attitude has not left. There are people in this world that want to control others. It's sad, really. It's, 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 uh, I'm not sure what else to say about that, but having, having, having such a, uh, just a desire to control others and, and have a, a life that is completely misdirected, that's no good. I mean, we, we have to look and turn to the Lord, to Lord Jesus Christ, to direct our steps. So these uh, Pharisees wanted to 
control everything, and for Paul, a former Pharisee, again, had that heart surgery, had that change in his, in his heart, that that pride was taken out, humility was put in its place. And was it hard for Paul, the apostle, to say this? No, not at all. Would have it been very difficult to call God the only wise God, as Paul the Pharisee? It's possible. Depends on how much pride is there. But after his salvation, Paul consistently pointed people to God and his wisdom, not to Paul's wisdom. Not, don't look at me. Who am I? There's Jesus. Go, go see him. He's the man you need to do business with. So this lesson that we've been looking through here uh, focused on before and after pictures. We've had the Apostle Paul give his testimony, and he's recounted it multiple times throughout Scripture in his writings and through the book of Acts as well. It's highlighted the life that Paul had before and after his conversion. He was brash. He was arrogant. He was a prideful man, and his sin was laid bare before the Lord, who showed mercy on Paul. It was laid open. God knew what was going on in Saul's life. It was not, it was not, nothing was hidden. The Lord met him on the road to Damascus, showed him who he really was. He met the Lord, and that changed his life. Saul believed Jesus, right? The world around us, uh, how, to, how to phrase this here? The question is, do you believe in God, or do you believe God? Now, I would say that Saul of Tarsus believed in God, believed in the existence from that head knowledge, part of, part of the, the brain or the soul, but didn't necessarily believe God. So do you believe God when he says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that no man cometh unto the Father but by him? Do you believe God? That's the important part. Or do you just believe in God? By this time, when Saul met the Lord on the road to Damascus, Saul believed God. The chiefest of sinners had been redeemed, not to live for himself, but to live for and serve God. Serve him in the propagation and the preservation of the gospel and the word of God. He was given a task to do. Go preach, go teach, and then eventually record down the Word of God so it could be preserved for later generations. He was a living testimony that the vilest offender who truly believes, that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. And that same mercy and grace from the Lord that was shown to Paul is available today to anyone who would call upon the name of the Lord for forgiveness of sins repentance toward God, and faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's available to anyone today. If you don't know him, you need to know him. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time here tonight. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul, that he, in humility, recounts his testimony, uh, speaking of who he was before and who he was after. Lord, that each of us, have that same before and after testimony if we know you, your son as Savior. Lord, we thank you for the free gift of salvation that's offered to all. 
at great cost to you, Lord, the death of your, your only son. Lord, we thank you for your time here tonight. We pray that you would just help us in growing closer to you in these days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.